Well, just a couple of practical points, and I know you got a lot of blanks in your notes this morning. I told Leslie, she was a little worried. She was like, well, look, this skit's going to be about 20 minutes, and, and most of you know that I preach a lot longer than that. So uh, she was like, uh, and I said, look, 10 min- I can preach this in 10 minutes or 30 minutes, but based on the clock, we got plenty of time, so we're in no rush this morning. So the first thing I want to I, I give you this morning as we open Matthew chapter 2 about these wise men coming to Christ And this is a critical point. When we see these wise men come to Christ, number one, they are seeking a king and a kingdom. And this is a very important point for us to understand biblically, because when these wise men show up, these are Gentiles, these are magi, these probably would have been people from the Far East, Oriental astrologers who had studied science, who had studied astrology, Uh, They understood the times and seasons. They would have also understood the biblical account uh, of the prophecy of the star of Jacob that we're going to see in just a second. Uh, The Bible is full of wise men. There There were wise men with Joseph in Egypt. There were wise men that built the tabernacle. There were wise men in Daniel's uh, captivity in Babylon. But these wise men are showing up, and, and, and the timing of this visit is very important because it mentions that they're following a star. And they're coming to see a young child in a house, not a babe in a manger. And so when these wise men show up to Christ, what they are looking for specifically is a king. As a matter of fact, when you look back at Matthew 2, the first question asked in the New Testament is this question. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? That's a very important question. And so in your notes, this is the first question asked in the New Testament, and that question has everything to do with a king and a kingdom. You see, they're not looking for they're not looking for a savior, they're not looking for a prophet, they're not looking for a priest, they're looking for the king. And in the book of Matthew, more than any other book in your New Testament, Matthew portrays Christ as the king of the Jews. As a matter of fact, that word king or kingdom appears in over 74 verses in the book of Matthew, more than any other New Testament book. And so this is the book of the king and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, they're following this star. They're coming from east to the west. And and if we were to do a little Bible study, we would find in Numbers chapter 24 that the star that they were following was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. In Numbers 24 and verse 17, The Bible says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star, capital S, out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Seth. And so so we know that that star they're following is the star of Jacob. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. They're fulfilling their understanding prophecy. They're following this star. The star lands and stands where Jesus Christ is. And let me just point you back to that verse for a second. Because that star is associated with a scepter. You see, because, because the whole thing about Christ is about a king and a kingdom. As a matter of fact, listen... Maybe you're newer to our church, or maybe you're visiting this morning, and let me just tell you, the theme of the Bible, as wonderful as salvation is for us, the Bible is not about your salvation or my salvation, and it's not about redemption, and it's not about the blood atonement, and all those things are important, and it's not about the church, the body of Christ. What what the Bible is about is a king 
who rightfully deserves a kingdom. And his name is Jesus Christ. And, and so this star that they're following, this star of Jacob, is associated with a scepter. Psalm 45 and verse 6, the Bible says, Thy throne, O God, is forever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. And many times when we think of the Christmas story, we don't necessarily think about a king and a kingdom, do we? We think about a babe in a manger. We think about the virgin birth. And listen, all those things are biblical and important. We think about our Lord and Savior being born so that he could give his life and die. And that's important. We should appreciate that. But, but the crowning moment in Christ's ministry is not when he died for my sin and for yours. The crowning mom, moment will be when he receives the crown as king of kings and lord of lords and rules and reigns in righteousness for all of eternity. That's when Christ will be glorified. And, and, so, and so we need to understand that in our life and in this world, every single problem can be traced back to a battle over a throne and a struggle over worship. You see, the problem that, that you have in your life is the same problem I have in my life. Who's going to be on the throne of authority? And who is going to get the worship? Am I going to get the worship? Is, is the God of this world going to get the worship? Or is Jesus Christ going to get the worship that he deserves? And so these wise men show up and they're looking for a king and a kingdom. If we were to do a little Bible study and, and if we were to land back in the book of Judges, there, there was a time in Israel's history in the Old Testament where there was no king. And, and things got really bad for the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, in Judges chapter 17 and verse 6, concerning the days of the judges, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It says it again in Judges 21 and verse 25. And when I said earlier that every problem that we have in our personal life and every problem in this world can be boiled down to the battle over a throne and a battle over a worship, the book of Judges proves it. Because when there's no king in my life and there's no king in your life, well, we're left to our own authority and our own ways and our own wisdom. But these wise men showed up and said, listen, we've heard the king is here. Where is he? We want to come and worship him. We want to bow down to him. We want to put him in a rightful place of authority in our life. But see, when we don't do that as Christians, listen, we, we open the door for problems in our life. As a matter of fact, get this in your notes. Listen, when there's no king in our life, truth becomes relative. Truth becomes relative. And that was the problem in the book of Judges. When there was no king in Israel, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You see, when there's no king, there's no authority. And when there's no authority, there's no standard of rule. There's no absolute truth. There's no absolute truth. We would say things like this. Well, the way I see it, fill in the blank. That's every man's, that's every man's own eyes determining what's truly right or wrong. Anybody ever said that? Well, the way I see it is, and that's fine. Listen, you have eyes. That's, that's fine. We'll talk about that in a second. But the way I see it is not the standard. What God has said is the standard. There's a king who has a word, and his word is powerful, and it's the absolute authority. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 4 says, Where the word of a king is, there's what? There's power. And, and, and who may say unto him, What you doing? 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, if there's a king, he has absolute authority, he has absolute power, and that means that his word carries the power of the throne. It carries the power of the king. We know from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 that the word of God, the Bible says, is quick. It doesn't mean fast. It means alive. The word of God is quick, and it's also what? And listen, the reason the word of God is powerful is because it's the word of a king. The Bible in our life ought to be the king's word. And with that, it ought to have the king's power. But listen, when there's no king in my life and there's no king in your life, truth becomes relative. Oh, well, here's the way I see it. And you live your life according to that standard instead of God's standard. Well, these wise men said there's a king. And we're going we're gonna to humble ourselves at his feet. Number two, when, there, when there's no king in our life, there's an I problem. And, and, and that is a correct underline. And, and the I problem is our individuality is exalted. When there's no king in Israel, it's all about me. How was that? A little pitchy, a little off. Yeah, sorry about that. Man, listen, can I just tell you, when there's no king in Israel... I become a problem because I think life is about me. But when there's a king that deserves worship, deserves my worship, it's all about him. You guys okay with that? And so listen, when there's no king, I become the problem and my individuality is exalted. Because in Judges 17, it says, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Every man. And yet, can I just remind you, at the moment of your salvation... God didn't make it about you. God made it about his body, the body of Christ. We are a part of something bigger than ourselves. As a matter of fact, our individuality ceased at the cross because we are no longer independent, but the truth is we are interdependent as the body of believers, as the body of Christ. We need each other. We, we are called to depend upon the rest of the body. You see, there's no place for you just do you in Christianity. And there's plenty of people, because of our circumstances the last couple of years, that have tried to live out their Christian faith in isolation as an individual. And true, you have the priesthood of believer. You can worship God independently, but God has made you interdependent on a body. But listen, if there's no king in your life, you become the center of worship. I become the center of worship. And God tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, look, as the body is one and hath many members, all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. When you got saved, you got put into something that was so amazing called the body of Christ. And it's much bigger than you. And it's much bigger than me. Because we need each other. But listen, if there's no king... I become the object of worship. And then number three, when, when, when there's no king in Israel, there's an I problem. Wait a second, you just said that, Jay. Yeah, but the spelling's different, so it means something different. When, when there's no king in Israel, there's an I problem because we live by sight instead of by faith. Because Judges tells us when there's no king in Israel, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You know, God... God has a lot to say about our eyes. I don't know if you've ever studied that thing out. But you can't trust what you see. You just can't trust what you see in this world. We have, we have a problem with our eyes. According to the Word of God, and I don't have these verses on the screen, but just listen. According to the Word of God, 
In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, the Bible says that our eyes are, are lustful. We, we have the lust of our eyes. In, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 14, the Bible says that our eyes are full of adultery. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, God tells us that as the Laodicean church, we don't even know it, but we're blind spiritually. And we don't even know it. And yet, if we use our eyes as the standard by which we measure and live our life, we've made a grave mistake. Because the way you and I see it ain't what really is true. Only God's word is true. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 tells us that we need to walk by faith and not by sight. And so these wise men, I want to get back to Matthew 2, man, these wise men are seeking Christ, and they're seeking him as a king, and they're seeking him in his kingdom. And God tells us in Matthew 6, that's kind of what we're supposed to do anyways. We're supposed to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first. And all the other things in life that we think we need, our Heavenly Father will provide those things. But many times we focus on those things instead of Him. Wise men seek a king and a kingdom. How about you? Do you want to see Christ in His rightful place? As the object of your worship? As the sole authority in your life? Because if the answer to that is no, you're not really looking for a king. You're looking for a, a genie in a bottle. You're looking for somebody to get you out of your situation when things get hard. And yet God says, this is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he deserves our worship. We need to desire to see him glorified in our life. Number two, wise men offer their worship. Go back, go back to verses 10 through 11. The Bible says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so not only do wise men seek a king and a kingdom, but number two, they offer the king their worship. Let's talk about worship for just a second and, and, and kind of see what the Bible defines that as. According to the word of God, wise men worship Christ, number one, by rejoicing. That's what they did. And what's interesting is in verse 10, they haven't even seen Christ yet. All they saw was his star. But when they saw the star stop over the house, they started rejoicing before they ever laid eyes on the young child. You can rejoice even though you haven't seen him yet face to face. Can I get an amen? I mean, listen, if you believe what this book says and you believe in salvation through, through Jesus Christ... You know what the book says. You can see Christ through the eyes of faith. And because of that, you can rejoice and worship him now. That's what the word rejoicing means. It means they had exceeding great joy. Psalm 35 and verse 9, it says, My soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. Any saved people in the house this morning? Listen, man, that ought to, that ought to be the rejoicing of our hearts Wise men worship Christ because we're saved. Psalm 43 and verse 4 says, Then I will go to the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Yea, unto the harp I will praise thee, O God my God. I mean, the psalmist is saying, listen, I am so excited about what God has done for me, i got to pick up an instrument. Let's go, man. Let me, let, me, let me play a song. Let me get on this harp. Let me get on the bass. Let me get on something so I can rejoice in the Lord. Nehemiah tells us in Nehemiah 8 and verse 10 that the joy of the Lord is our strength. 
And that's why many times we as Christians have a weak faith. Because we've forgotten to rejoice and to worship the Lord because of what he's done in our life. Wise men worship Christ by rejoicing. Number two, wise men worship Christ corporately. Look at verse 2, saying, Where is he that's born king of the Jews? Listen, for we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And, and it is interesting, they're using the word we. Hey, let's go worship together. Now, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us there were three wise men. This morning, Nora was going to tell us that one of those wise men was on vacation in the Bahamas. That's why there were only two this morning. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us how many wise men there were. There, there may have been three. There may have been ten. We don't know how many there were. But here's what we know. There's more than one. And, and when they showed up, they said, we want to worship him. So it was corporate worship. Look at Psalm 122 and verse 1. The Bible says, I was glad when they said unto me, individual, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go. And, and by the way, church, we need you here. And you need to be here. And if you don't have a home church, you need to find a home church where you can cor corporately worship the Lord together with other believers in Christ because you are interdependent with the body of Christ. Number three, wise men worship Christ in a house. The Bible says in verse 11, when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. Doctrinally, that points to the house of Israel because Christ came through the nation of Israel. But devotionally, you know the church is called the house of God? Did you know that? At 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, if I tarry long, thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Do you know where those wise men went to worship? They went in a house. And they worshiped in a house. And by the way, Christ's presence was in the house. And many times, can I just tell you, we were looking for it everywhere else in this world, right? We're looking at it on YouTube, online. I'm thankful for Facebook and YouTube and all that stuff. But listen, when we corporately gather and worship together, that's where we're going to find Christ's presence. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 says, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. It's the household of faith that manifests Christ's presence. Number, number whatever we're on. I don't even know what number we're on. Here, number next. Let's use it that one. Number next. Wise men worship Christ in humility. And listen, when they came into his presence, the Bible says that they fell down and they worshiped him. And that position of being prostrate, they bowed their head, they worshiped the Lord. I gave you a ton of references in your notes. Every time you see somebody worshiping in the Bible, they're bowing their head down. They're lowering their face to the, to the ground in humility because they realize there's someone in greater power than me in my presence. I'm humbling myself, man. You see it in Genesis, you see it in Exodus, you see it in Joshua, you see it in Chronicles. Every single time someone worships, the Bible says they, they bowed their head, they fell to the ground, and they worshiped. That's called humility. And, and we struggle with that as Americans. But the way up for a Christian is always down. We have to learn to humble ourselves before the Lord. As a matter of fact, God tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, Verses 5 and 6, that we need to be clothed with humility. 
It needs to be our outward adorning. The Bible tells us that God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to who? To the humble. And so God's word tells us that we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he can exalt us in due time. And that's a real struggle for us, man. If we would be honest with ourselves and with the Lord, the truth is some of us have not humbled ourselves before the Lord in a long time. And let me tell you how I know that. Because we're living out this life without God's grace. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the reason that we have so much resistance in our relationships, in our marriages, in our ministries, on our jobs, with our children, is because there's no humility. And when we don't have humility, guys, listen, God doesn't give us his grace. I know you have saving grace. I'm not saying you're not saved. But I'm telling you, man, I need God's grace every moment of every day. I need him in my marriage. I need his grace in my marriage. I need it in my church relationships. I need it in my ministry. I need it with my children. And they need it. And man, when when we operate through life without humility before the Lord, God resists us. And there's friction. And man, listen, you can't fix it outside of humility. You can't fix it. And so wise men humble themselves in the presence of the king. And who are we, man? Where do, where do we ever get to the point where we can't humble ourselves before the Lord? He is the king, right? And that never changes. And so, and so when we position ourselves in humility, well, God gives us abundant grace that we need. Number next, God, God tells us in this word that, that wise men worship Christ by giving. And this is not a tithing message this morning, so don't clench your wallet. I mean, it's no, you know, don't freak out. But the Bible does tell us that they open their treasures, right? They open their treasures. You know, Matthew chapter 6 tells us that we're not to lay up treasures for ourselves upon the earth, where moth and rust does corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. The God, God's Word tells us that we're to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't get to it, where they can't corrupt it, where thieves can't break through and steal. And then the Bible says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And in Matthew chapter 6, God tells us there's two different types of treasure, corruptible treasure and incorruptible treasure. And God tells us that that treasure is located in two different places. That treasure is on earth or that treasure is in heaven. And these wise men worship Christ by opening and giving freely of their treasures. By By the way, the reason they even had treasure was because of God's grace. I mean, they were just giving back to God what God had already blessed them with. And so, and so when you esteem Christ highly, well, you, you have no problem giving. And again, look at what they gave him. They gave him gold. And, and as you study that thing out, biblically, gold is a gift for a king because Christ is the king. Gold is the most valuable material in God's economy. You know, at the judgment seat of Christ, you're going you're gonna to be able to build upon the foundation of the gospel with gold Maybe receive that at the judgment seat of Christ. Gold throughout the, the Bible rep- represents and, and symbolizes God's deity, the fact that he's God. And you can go all the way back to Exodus. There's a lot of things we could talk about. We don't have time this morning. Just know that they gave a gift for a king. Number two, they gave frankincense, which is a gift for a priest. And you can go back to Exodus, and you can find that 
pure frankincense being given, and it's also associated with the meat offering in the book of Leviticus chapter 2 and chapter 5, and there's a lot that we could talk about. Christ is the king. Christ did have a priestly ministry for us. That's what his ministry is now. He, he goes and intercedes on our behalf to God. And then number three, they gave him myrrh, which is a gift for a prophet. And man, when you study that thing of myrrh, again, we don't have time, but myrrh is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. It's mentioned here when the wise men brought it at, at his birth. It's mentioned at his death. And it's mentioned in John 19 at his burial because he is the prophet that gave his life for us. He, he laid down his life for us. And man, listen, if, if Christ really is the king and it's all about his kingdom, well, wise men don't have a problem giving. But when there is no king in Israel and when there's no king in my life, we got a hard time letting go of some things, don't we? I mean... Let's just be honest. We do. We're laying up treasure on this earth, and God says all that's going to corrupt and, and burn up anyways. We're wasting an investment. Invest in things that matter. Invest in eternal things that are incorruptible and eternal. Okay, number three, and we're done. Wise men walk in a different way. Wise men walk in a different way. And I, I love, this is kind of really where the, the message rooted from. As I was studying this passage, I really, verse 12 was, was kind of where I wanted to get to. The Bible says, being warned of God in a dream, they should not return to Herod. They departed into their own country another way. And you guys remember the story. We just read it a few minutes ago, right? Herod, they show up asking, hey, where's the king of the, of the Jews? And he got really worried because the Bible calls him in Matthew chapter 2 the king. He, he's the king of this world. Herod is a picture of the Antichrist. Herod is a picture of Satan. He's a picture of the devil. And he's in control but somebody's threatening his authority. And all of Jerusalem was worried that there's another king that's the true king of the Jews. And so Herod sends the wise men and says, hey, can you just go find him and then come tell me again so I can come worship him? And that was a bogus answer. You know what I'm saying? His, his motivation wasn't to worship Christ. His motivation was to, to kill Christ. And, and so these wise men show up to Christ they, they understand they're in the presence of a king. They worship him in all the ways that we talked about. And then the Bible says that they received a warning not to go back to Herod. And so they went back into their own country. Listen, another way. And the truth is, just practically, once you come to Christ, God wants you to walk another way. God, God wants you to walk in a different way than when you came to Christ. You see, you can come as you are, but as Alan Shelby says, you can't stay as you is. And all the English majors in the room just had a heart attack right there. <laughs> Man, once you meet Christ, God changes your direction. He changes your walk. He, he actually loved them enough to warn them. And we're going to get into that in just a second. Can I just share with you Proverbs 14 and verse 12? It says, There's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of what? Of death. And listen, in those wise men's mind, they were instructed to go back to Herod. I mean, that's the way they came to Christ. They, they came from the east to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. And God said, okay, that's the way you came, but I don't want you going back that way. I want to change the way you're, you're going back. You're going to walk another way. 
And if they would have went back to Herod, again, who's a picture of the king of this world, or the devil, the Antichrist, that would have been a bad move. And so God loved them enough to warn them of the danger that awaited them. Psalm 19, verses 9 through 11. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Listen, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And so concerning these judgments, they're more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. And concerning these judgments, they're sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Listen, moreover, by them, by God's word, by God's judgments, moreover, by them is thy servant, what? Warned. And in keeping of them, there is great, what? Reward. And so get this key in your notes. God's word gives us warning to change where we walk. God's word gives us warning to change where we walk. And and let me just tell you, he does that because he loves us. He does that because he loves us. Not because he's mad at us, not because he hates us, not because he doesn't want what's best for us. He, He warns us to give us life. And listen, when you come to Christ, God wants to change the way you walk. And as Christians, many times, listen, when we don't have a king... And we don't have the word of the king that becomes an authority in our life. We walk through this life without warning. And we end up in a mess. I know that's nobody in this room, but I've heard other churches have those people. (laughs) Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul Paul established the church at Corinth. And they were a carnal church, man. They had a lot of problems. Not like this church. I mean, we're perfect. but, But Corinth, listen. They had a lot of problems, envying, division. They had just a lot of problems. The most carnal church in the New Testament. And he says, I write these things not to shame you, but as my beloved sons, listen, I warn you. And God writes these words to us as a warning, not because God wants to shame us, but God gives us his word to warn us because God knows it all. And God loves us enough to protect us. Paul writes and he says, Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I've begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, the Bible tells us that when we preach Christ, when we preach the gospel, literally what we're doing is warning every man. Can I just tell you, when I got saved at the age of 21, the guy that shared the gospel with me, I didn't understand it at the time, but I understand it now. When he shared the gospel with me, what he was doing was warning me of what was going to happen if I died without Christ. Now you say, man, that's a pretty judgmental thing. Well, he didn't do it to shame me. He didn't share the gospel with me to shame me. He, He loved me enough to warn me that if I continued my life without Christ, hell would become a reality. But Christ loved me so much that he died on the cross for my sin. He died on the cross for your sin. And when, and when we share the gospel of Christ, listen, it is bad news until we get to the good news. That we're all sinners. And we've all broken God's law. We fall short of God's glory. We're just sinful people. All men have sinned. And because of that sin, we're eternally separated from God. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can be warned that the, the payment of For our sin has been paid by someone else, and that is Jesus Christ. And we can be forgiven, and we can come to Christ as king, 
and worship him because truly he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Close your Bibles. Let me ask you a couple of questions as we, as we prepare to dismiss this morning. You know, we, we've had an awesome day. It's been a good day. As we, as we consider what we've heard from the scriptures, let me ask you a couple of questions just to ponder and respond to. The first question is this, are you a wise man? And here's how you know if you're a wise man. Are you seeking a king and a kingdom? Just remember that no king equals no truth. That truth is relative, and it's all based on the way I see it. No king means I become, as an individual, the most important person in this universe. No king means that walking by sight is better than walking by faith in God's word. But that's not the life of a wise man. A wise man seeks a king and a kingdom. Number two, are you worshiping Christ biblically? In other words, do you rejoice in your heart and soul for his salvation? You say, man, I do that, but I stay tight-lipped about it. Well, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. As a matter of fact, you ought to pick up an instrument. Not right now, but I mean, if you want to when we get done, you can. Do you rejoice? Do you worship corporately with the body of Christ in a house? Do you humble yourself before the Lord? Do you give freely of what God's blessed you with? Are you a wise man? Here's the third question. Are you walking in a different way? Are you walking in a different way because of the warnings that God has given you through his word? Do you receive the warnings of God's word? Or do you just say, hey man, I got my salvation, I'm done. Thank you, Jesus, I'm out. God's warning in our life is because of love. And it's to redirect our steps in a way that pleases him. And it's for the best in our life. Amen? It is for the best. Let's bow our heads and just consider what we've heard today.